We are still in a position where many people cannot see their loved ones in long-term care facilities. If you're not the designated visitor, if you're not somebody able uh, to go and visit, in some cases there are visits through windows, but certainly not the access that people had come to depend on, both for the loved ones and for people living in long-term care. And that's been a big issue during this pandemic and during the election campaign here in BC. And it was talked about during the debate last night. Earlier today, NDP leader John Horgan continued to talk about his long-term care plans and was asked a question about the future of long-term care and whether or not he wanted to get rid of all private care models. The mixed uh, system that we have in place today is not meeting our needs. We need to accelerate and expand public long-term care facilities, that's our priority. But we have private health care in place, private long-term care in place. We need to ensure that those beds are there for people right now when they need them. I believe we need to transition to a fully public system, but we won't be doing that overnight. We need to make sure, as with child care, that the for-profit component that does exist is not pushed out because of ideological reasons. That was John Horgan speaking earlier this morning. Let's bring in Dan Levitt. He is the CEO of Tabor Village. And Dan, great to have you back on the program. Great to be here today. Uh, Just to clarify for people, uh, Tabor Village, is it a private or a public system? Um, It's actually both. So it's a nonprofit. It is private because we're um, a separate entity, but we're publicly funded. Um, So I would say it's a combination. I think um, when, um, when the Premier Horgan is talking about um, public system system. I believe he's talking about the owned and operated um, care homes that you often find near hospitals. All right. So when you hear him say that uh, the the public and private system model isn't working, he would like to move towards a public only system, but doesn't want to push out private uh, operators based on ideology. What do you take from that? Well. I, it sounds to me like, like I'm, I'm not clear on what he's saying exactly because I think there is some ideology um, going on there around um, the um, profit making in, in healthcare, specifically around seniors care. But I would start to look at the actual um, um, environment that seniors are living in and that the workers are working in, and um, is a to actually say that a, uh, a private operator that's making a profit is. I'm going to do a lesser job than a nonprofit or a government-operated. Um, you have to look at the actual context of the, the people who are working there, what kind of living environment it is, and I think there's multiple factors. That's one factor, but to rule that out altogether, I think, would um, drastically change um, our current bed stock because so many of those beds, um, especially built over the past number of decades, have been around the for-profits, and uh, there is financial structures and a whole business there that we would have to kind of... Um, uh, pull out of the system, and I'm not sure how you would do that um, even in the short term. Uh, would it be more of a scenario then uh, as the government sets the benchmarks, sets the what what the minimum level of care that needs to be maintained in any system, whether it's a private center or a public center, and uh, then if, you, if you're a not-for-profit or a for-profit, the, the whole point is seniors' care, and they need to be getting a certain level of care. Exactly. So I think that's what we should be doing is setting set, uh, setting standards and saying, here's our expectation. We're going to fund you appropriately. We want um, a certain amount of money to go to that direct care. Um, there's really three buckets of funding. There's the direct care provision, uh, there's um, the support services, and there's the administration and building costs. Um, so it'd be fair enough to, and they do that currently, the government, um, where you allocate um, the budget based on um, where the funding is. And it's very prescriptive. Um, there's talk about 
um, being having more um, oversight of this. But the amount of oversight right now, um, we've had to hire extra staff just to uh, comply with all the government regulations related to reporting. And they're important um, reports to, to submit, um, but I, I don't think adding more regulations on to reporting uh, for operators is going to help a lot. What about the issue of inspections and making sure that long-term care facilities are, in fact, meeting those minimum targets, whether it's staffing, whether it's number of care hours, and that they're following the rules? Yeah, of course. And, and there's a lot of inspections right now. A lot of reports we're submitting. Um, we've, we've upped our game um, with COVID-19. There's much more um, scrutiny around what we're doing in our industry. Um, at the same time, it's more of a quality assurance approach um, where, we're, where we're looking at the minimum standard and seeing if we're meeting it. Um, I really think we should be looking beyond that. And the industry has made huge strides over the past number of decades in enhancing the quality of life for seniors and enhancing uh, the working environment. So it really should be kind of that value add that we're measuring. Um, the expectation, of course, should be on hitting the minimum, but it should be where we're enhancing quality of life. We've heard uh, some promises as well. Uh, John Horgan talking about single room only, uh, bringing dignity back for people living in long-term care. The last time we talked about this, a few people contacted me saying, wait a minute, my loved one is in long-term care. Her roommate is her best friend. That's part of the socializing of being in long-term care. Not for everybody, but there are some people that enjoy and thrive in a situation where they do have a roommate. What do you say to this, this plan, this goal to have everybody in a private room. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I think with COVID-19 and with infection control generally, we've had infections, gastro, um, um, intestinal infections, we've had um, influenza. So I think that's kind of the motive is to is to get rid of the multi-bedrooms for that reason. Now, I think they're really talking about um, beds with, or rooms with more than two beds. And um, I don't think anyone really wants to spend the, the last part of their life in that kind of environment. But that roommate idea, some people love roommates. Jill, you might be um, the perfect roommate for somebody. I might not be the perfect roommate for, for somebody. So I might want my own room. It really should be the individual preference. And, of course, there are married couples um, or, or siblings that might want to live together. So generally when we're designing uh, care homes, we have a certain number of those, those double rooms, and there will always be double rooms. Um, and if there aren't double rooms, we need to have rooms that are next to each other with an adjoining room for couples or other people that want to have that socialization. They might take one room to live in, to sleep in, and then the other one to spend their time in. And when we're talking single site for workers, is that something, I know we've made that huge shift during the pandemic, is that something that you think is going to be sustainable? Um, well, it's, it's interesting because, again, infection control related, if you look at that, that lens, if that's how you're approaching the issue, it does make sense to have only one site. Um, one of the, the, um, the tough things is that it's only um, certain um, other long-term care homes where these workers can't, can't go to, but they can work in other places. They can work in a grocery store. And they, there's other jobs they can have and there's other risk exposure they have besides the single site. So we know that, obviously, um, the, the initial incidents of COVID-19, they were spread from one care home to another by a, um, a worker, as my understanding. So that will help prevent infections, and I think that's probably going to be a way, the way of the future. But it's causing um, um, a lot of havoc right now in the industry where we have more overtime, less availability of casuals. We didn't think it would translate that way, but it sure did. And I think in terms of health human resource planning, we need to do a lot more thinking about this before 
um, we implement solutions like this because there just aren't enough healthcare workers um, to go around right now. Uh, in, in, and how are things going, uh, are you seeing as far as, uh, again, we're still hearing from people that would like to have more visitation with their loved ones, would like to have more people be able to come and visit? Uh, I mean, we understand why those restrictions were brought in. Uh, how are things going with that? Um, it's it's a challenge, challenging all the time. Um, explaining to uh, a, a daughter yesterday um, why she can't go spend a, a, um, an hour and a half with her mom um, who's isolated and um, who, who really needs that, that extra TLC. Um, it's just amazing that um, at this day and age, we're having to tell um, um, couples um, not to embrace and to kiss when they've been married for decades. Um, so we do have to change um, our whole mindset around this and uh, look at a different way of approaching it. So it is... Um, a major um, stress point in, in our industry. And if you think about it, um, these family members, uh, they weren't just visiting their loved one. They would, they would uh, be part of, of our whole family and, uh, and our community. And now they're, they're ostracized and they're restricted. Uh, we have to figure out a better way of doing this. And I know that uh, the Seniors Advocate has done a provincial review of this and will be coming out with a report, I believe, later this month. So I'm hoping that we'll see some um, reforms around this and going back to perhaps how things were before, but with some controls. And, and certainly when we see um, testing being uh, more um, readily available um, and, and quicker, we'll be able to perhaps put some of those safeguards in place, but have an increased amount of visitation. All right, uh, Dan, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again so much. Great to have you back on the show. Pleasure. Anytime. That is Dan Levitt. He is the CEO at Tabor Village. Well, if you watched the debate last night or listened to it on the radio, you know that it was pretty respectful. The moderator, Shachi Curl, didn't really have to step in and tell people their time was up or tell people to stop talking over one another to let the other answer. A little bit of that, but not very much. Uh, A lot of talk about the economy, about COVID-19, about what the future looks like with this pandemic. Uh, what will happen as far as stimulating business, rents for people that are having trouble making ends meet, the promises that we see during any election campaign, not just one in a snap election called during the pandemic. But there was also that question, and I played it during my conversation with Richard Zussman, where the moderator asked each of the leaders their personal experience with racism and with unconscious bias. And it was the answer from John Horgan that had many people wondering what exactly is he saying? And in fact, it's an answer that quickly, as soon as the, the debate ended, he did offer an apology and had to explain what exactly he meant. But this is the answer we're talking about. Well, thank you, uh, Sachi. And I uh, grew up in southern Vancouver Island. I was a lacrosse player. I played with uh, Indigenous friends. I played with South Asian friends. For me, I did not see color. I, I felt that everyone around me was the same. So we wanted to check in with Soraya Lakani, who is the director of the Yellow Kite Child Psychology Center in Alberta. She has been talking about this and answering questions about why exactly that comment is getting such reaction and why many say that that comment was inappropriate. And Soraya Lakani joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about one specific segment of the leaders' debate in BC last night, and it was when the three leaders were asked to talk about unconscious bias, asked to talk about their personal experiences with racism, and one of the answers in particular is getting a lot of attention. Before we get to that, though, what is your response? What do you think about asking, in this case, three white political leaders about their personal experience with racism? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's definitely, um, you know, some pretty profound limitations to that question, right? Um, uh, and um, I think it, it sort of pushes people perhaps to think outside of their own experiences as well and reflect on their own implicit biases um, and, and to kind of recognize uh, the part that, um, you know, we sort of implicitly play in upholding certain um, potentially uh, systemically racist institutions. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's likely uh, limitations, you know, within that question um, as well. John Horgan, the leader of the NDP in this province, uh, was talking about uh, how when uh, he was young, uh, he's saying that he grew up uh, and didn't see color. He then apologized for saying that uh, later on, uh, not too, too much later on. What's your response, though, when you hear someone say that? Yeah, I mean, I think somehow, um, you know, people have come to conflate the idea of seeing race or seeing color with being racist. Um, and so we see that a lot, especially when we think about, you know, children's experiences or parents talking about their children's experiences. And there's kind of this gravitation towards the idea of being, you know, colorblind. I don't see color because if I don't see color, then I can't be uh, a racist, basically. Um, and, and the reality is that everybody sees color, right? We see it the same way we see many other physical characteristics of people, of the world around us, the same way we see shape, the same way we see height, the same way we see, um, you know, what clothing, you know, people are wearing. So it's not something that, that people can opt out of um, in terms of saying, like, I just don't perceive this physical characteristic. But I think we've come to sort of pair the idea of seeing color with the idea of being racist. And that's why often people try to gravitate towards this notion of I don't see race. And we see that a lot more um, within, you know, white communities, because the reality is that for a lot of racialized families, racialized kids, they do grow up talking very frequently about race because it's a part of their lived experience. Um, so oftentimes there is kind of this disproportionate uh, notion of, of not seeing race within white communities who perhaps have not been impacted by uh, racism. Um, and the truth is that if we if we talk about the idea of seeing race, we, we acknowledge that that's just a natural part of human diversity and something we see, then it opens up the door to have productive conversations around, um, around racism. Um, and I mean, we see that being important um, from the time kids are, are very young in terms of how parents 
talk to them as well. Kids tend to be much more open and and say things that maybe adults might not say. And if an adult said it, it might be deemed as as questionable. But how do you deal with with kids? Like you said, everybody sees this, and when kids are seeing that people on the playground might be different than them, that but but not in that's not a bad thing. Exactly, right? I mean, seeing race is not a bad thing at all. Um, it's, it's a very sort of natural, normal thing. Um, is it, I think to your point, kids are definitely a lot more inquisitive, right? So, so they will be curious about why people look different from them. Why does that person have a different color skin than I do? Or why does that person have, you know, different hair than I do? Um, and so kids will ask those questions. And I think very often parents feel, uh, you know, uncomfortable um, as though their kids are pointing at something that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, and the, the problem arises if, if we don't have conversations with kids. Um, kids are very driven to try and figure out answers for themselves. Uh, and so um, that's where it can lead to, um, you know, problematic beliefs kind of settling in or, or kids starting to fill in the blanks and say, well, if someone is different from me, then they're not as good as me. Or if someone is different from me, then there's something wrong with them. Um, and that's sometimes what happens when we don't lean into their curiosity and we don't sort of openly have um you know, conversations uh, with them. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, from the time kids are six months, they can perceive these things. From the time they're a couple of years old, they can start showing preference um, for, for playmates and for, for kids who are from the same racial group. Um, and, and racial bias can start to show up very, very young um, if kids aren't having conversations and if they're not seeing examples of racial diversity represented to them in the lives that they live and the media that they consume. So that's where it becomes really, really important. Um, whenever kids ask questions for parents to lean into them to say, yeah, everybody, you know, lots of people look different. Um, and, and isn't that cool, right? Isn't that kind of an awesome part of being human? Um, but also making sure that in terms of what kids are seeing represented to them, in terms of what parents are modeling in their own sort of social communities, uh, the kinds of stories kids are reading, the kind of TV shows that they're watching, um, that they're seeing lots of examples of, of, of racial diversity um, and that, uh, that it's portrayed to them as being this, this very, um, you know, natural and positive part of the human uh, experience. So what do you think happens to people then going from that part of being an inquisitive child, learning about the environment around you, seeing what is happening around you uh, to being an adult? And one of the questions last night was also about unconscious bias. How do you go from being perhaps uh, very open and, and seeing everything around you to having unconscious bias? So I think there is kind of that middle step, right, where where initially you're curious, but then if you're not having conversations and you're not seeing representation or you're seeing the kind of representation where, uh, you know, people of a certain race, so the dominant race perhaps, um, uh, or, you know, are, are in positions of power and then racialized people are, uh, you know, antagonists or are, are portrayed as being dispensable in, you know, the stories you read or the, the movies you watch, um, over time it can start to inform, you know, your view of the world. Um, and again, it, it comes back to, 
Um, are you talking about these things regularly as you're growing up? Are you seeing representation um, in, in what you're consuming? Do you have opportunities to interact with people who have different lived experiences than you do, who come from different, um, you know, racial groups um, from, from the one you come from? Um, but I think when we don't have those opportunities, what starts to happen is we begin on some, you know, implicit level to view the world as working in a very specific way. Um, and we see, um, you know, we're less familiar uh, with, with experiences that are different from ours. Um, and, uh, and over time, we, we kind of, um, you know, develop uh, less empathy for people perhaps who, who have different stories than we do. Um, and uh, in, in what we're consuming, we view people portrayed in very specific ways. Um, and so it, uh, it eventually uh, it starts to inform, you know, what makes sense in terms of um, the world around us. And, uh, and then that can then inform, you know, a lot of these implicit biases um, that we see. So I think it's that step where we make sense of the world based on what we consume, the kinds of conversations that we're having. And if we're not talking about race, if we're not seeing racial diversity represented to us, um, then over time it, it, it starts to feel like it's perhaps a non-issue or a non-factor, um, even though, you know, it, it has ultimately come to inform how we perceive the world around us in terms of what kinds of people hold what kinds of positions. All right. Uh, Soraya, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining the program. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. That is Soraya Lacani, Director of Yellow Kite Child Psychology in Alberta. Taking a look at a rather strange story. It has to do with a letter that was sent from the Nova Scotia government. It was warning residents about a pack of wolves on the loose. Turns out the letter was forged by Canadian military personnel and it was all part of a propaganda training mission that went sideways. To explain a little bit more what this story is all about is the journalist who wrote this for the Ottawa Citizen newspaper and David Puglesi joins me on the phone lines now. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, great to be here. Uh, Just reading the first line uh, from your story uh, raises so many questions. So what happened? Well, uh, the Canadian Forces is expanding its propaganda capabilities uh, to use both in Canada and overseas. And so what they did was they forged a letter um, with Nova Scotia government, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nova Scotia government, uh, you know, logos and the whole bit. They put a Nova Scotia, a real Nova Scotia government person um, signing off on this letter and a phone number. And then they um, sent this around, uh, and it was warning residents in, in a certain area of Nova Scotia to beware that uh, these wolves were, were roaming and do not approach them and that type of thing. But what it, what it is is an exercise, and they do this overseas, in that uh, they try to control the population. So you, you put out uh, false propaganda, and then you see how the population reacts. And, and that's what they were doing. It was a training mission. They weren't supposed to uh, put that letter in people's mailboxes, but they did. <laughs> so, so where was the breakdown that it went from being a training mission to somebody actually putting it in people's mailboxes? 
We don't know that yet. I mean, the Canadian Forces is uh, doing an investigation. Uh, it's been pretty embarrassing for them. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny on the on the outside, but it, uh, it, it raises some real uh, questions about uh, ethics, about where these capabilities might be used in the future. Right, because in this, play, this case, and again, getting a bit of a laugh out of it, because here, mm-hmm. just picturing somebody opening their mailbox, looking at this letter, they're being told that they need to be wary that wolves have been reintroduced into their area by the provincial and federal governments, and mm-hmm. that they're now roaming the valley. Uh, I can imagine people were, were frightened and wondering what the heck was going on, but that bigger picture of, of these exercises being used elsewhere... Well, they've and they've started doing it. I mean, one of the things they did during the pandemic um, is they started scanning an intelligence group at uh, Canadian Forces started scanning social media accounts of people in British Columbia, in Ontario, and and, and different different places. And um, uh, you know, for instance, they're getting ready for the forest fire season, so they're watching people in British Columbia, and w- what they found was uh, was worrisome, and it was wasn't forest fires, but it was some volcano uh, erupting somewhere around the, you know, somewhere else in, in the world. Um, with the uh, with the Ontario people, they were collecting uh, comments, uh, r- rather negative comments about the Ontario government and how they handled the uh, long-term uh, care crisis, and then they gave those comments to the um, to the Ontario government. So there's, you know, the, this type of data mining is is also very concerning. So, so in a scenario like that, you're saying somebody might have been posting about how upset they were with how a loved one was treated or with what Correct. was happening in a long-term care, and you're just venting. You're just putting that out there that exactly. that I'm really upset, not knowing that that's going to be picked up and sent to the government. Right, and and so the Canadian Forces response when I did that story was, well, these are open open source. You know, open source comments, and which is true, but you're collecting them and then giving them to the government. Uh, you know, that might be uh, problematic. Um, you know, I'd had another story earlier this week. They spent a million dollars on um, it's called behavior modification. Uh, training. This is similar to this wolf stuff, um, where they're training public affairs officers on how to uh, best modify the the um, the reaction, the the communications approach in dealing with the public and with the media. Uh, which is a bit frightening when you think about what they're doing with that information. Exactly. I mean, some people inside, I mean, I'm being tipped off by a lot of this because there's there's people inside that are, are worried where these skills might be used um, in, in a democracy. And we've seen in Cambridge Analytica that big scandal where data mining from Facebook accounts was provided to Donald Trump, you know, campaign for, for the 2016 election. So we've seen this type of thing. And it's very concerning to some that the military is getting involved in in these types of capabilities. And in your story, you make reference to the fact that the letter that became public wasn't really supposed to, but really uh, sparked a lot of questions. But then it seemed odd to me that this fake letter uh, that that was that was uh, put out, they didn't know that the military was behind the deception. Right. So people were freaking out <laughs> and calling the, you know, the government of Nova Scotia. Government of Nova Scotia, their wildlife uh, division, put out a, a tweet saying, hey, this is fake. We don't know who's behind it, but don't worry. And uh, so once the military saw that, they realized that they had screwed up. 
they told the government of Nova Scotia, and then they uh, went to the local media. And the military even, uh, again, used a loudspeaker to generate wolf sounds? Yeah, well, at one point they had a, a loudspeaker, uh, yes, exactly, to ge- generate wolf sounds. I don't know. I asked, uh, how did this factor into everything? I couldn't get a straight answer. Uh, so, so what would be the, the end game then? They want to know how people respond, what, if people went and bought arms, <laughs> if people hold up in their homes? What are they looking for? there? Well, I talked to a couple of propaganda specialists. So uh, this has been tried before. So in South Asia, in the war on terror, um, you know, uh, parents were sending their children to um, Islamic schools where they're becoming radicalized. And so what uh, contractors for the uh, U.S. uh, US military did was they put out fake information that if you send your child to these schools, there's pedophiles running these schools. So, you know, they're going to be molested. So they're, tr- they're putting out fake information to try to influence what people are doing instead of saying, don't send your kids, you know, to these schools. So, uh, you know, this is just a training exercise. Who knows what they want it? You know, do they want to practice if, if people have to stay indoors because of COVID? Uh, there's all kinds of scenarios. It's, it's, it's bizarre, but it's, it's concerning at the same time. Right, because it, it asked the question, and I think you touch on this in the piece as well. So are there no rules? There are no laws uh, that mm-hmm. says what our government can or can't do when it comes to using false information and uh, to manipulating the public? Well, technically, they're not supposed to be using this type of thing in Canada on domestic operations unless we have been invaded. Um, so last time I checked, there, you know, we haven't been invaded. So, you know, that's concerning. Um, you know, I was told that these officers that, that did this went through an ethics course. Well, they still forged the, the letter. They still violated the federal privacy law by by using some, some guy's, you know, identity. So, um, uh, yeah, there's there's some real issues here. And then from what from what you understand, then and, and I think it does raise some ethical questions abroad as well. But is there more acceptance of doing this in other countries rather than on Canadian soil? Yeah, there's more acceptance in doing it uh, in like a war zone. So they have done this type of thing uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but I'll give you another example, a uh, story I did a couple months ago they uh, the military brought in uh, what's called an information operations plan for for covid and they based it on Afghanistan combat and so what they were going to do were have these speaker trucks you know going down the streets uh, they were preparing to uh, deal with what they thought were Canadians were going to be rioting in the streets and how to deal with that so there's all kinds of this information warfare um, capabilities that were going to be directed at, at Canadians if, if we got out of hand um, because of COVID. Uh, what kind of response are you getting to this story? Uh, it's, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> the military is not happy, but uh, um, a lot of people um, are, are, are surprised that these types of capabilities are there, and and um, they shouldn't be because um, the military is in, in full swing on, on this stuff and uh, have been doing it all year and uh, spending a lot of money. And still saying that they follow ethical guidelines right. when it comes to any operation that deals with propaganda. Right, and, and, and that's what they say. So, you know, it's going to be... 
like when I did the story on the information operations uh, for COVID, they said, oh, it's a mistake, um, you know, but we stopped it before we put it into play. Um, on this one, they're going to blame it on, um, uh, you know, the, at the local unit level, which was in Halifax. Uh, you know, that type of thing on the data mining from COVID. They said, well, it's perfectly fine. And I kept asking questions like, well, why do you need to know what people think about the Ontario government's response to COVID Mm -hmm. when your job is essentially to help the elderly in a long-term care home? And it's just, uh, you know, you, you get these strange responses. So... All right. Well, it is a bizarre story, but uh, I'm so glad you were able to come and uh, shine some more light, give us some more details on this. Uh, David, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. David Puglesi, uh, Ottawa Citizen newspaper journalist. If you haven't seen this story, uh, check it out in the Ottawa Citizen uh, because we went over a lot of the details, uh, but so many more uh, in there. It, uh, it really leaves you scratching your head on what actually happened with that letter. And again, imagine opening your mailbox and a letter saying that wolves were roaming the valley and to be wary of that then finding out it was all part of a propaganda operation and joining us on the line now is david ian gray a marketing expert with dig 360 thank you so much for being with us Oh, you're welcome. Uh, talk a bit, if you can. We wanted to check in with you today, being Amazon Prime Days, the, the second of the two days. How have things changed as far as online shopping uh, with already people shifting that way, but now with the pandemic? Yeah, I, I like what you just said about already shifting that way. The, it, I think what the pandemic's really done is it's uh, accelerated some change that was already in play. And it's kind of highlighted some categories, like a lot of electronics are selling now, even though there's no new terrific game-changing app. Um, but people are now working from home that may not have before, and they're needing home-based electronics or homeschooling or staying in touch. Uh, so we're seeing some category shift, but the general trend of, of online started from a pretty low base. I think your listeners may not realize that uh, at the start of this year, say in January, we're probably looking at around 10, maybe 12% of all sales was online. And that shocks people. Most people think it was a lot higher, mm-hmm. but it's definitely starting to ramp up uh, with the pandemic and the restrictions around stores. And and I was wondering about that in there. There must be a group of people that were adamant, maybe not adamant, but would prefer to go to a store and prefer to do that face to face transaction. And now for sheer safety reasons, don't. Well, you know, what's funny is we're seeing that, but we're also seeing a role for stores in, in all this. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll say online has not been uh, without its own challenges, um, you know, mistaken orders, wrong sizes or out of stocks and out of stock can happen with online just as easily as in store. Uh, But what we're finding is the retailers that have a store option that's convenient to complement their e-commerce are doing fairly well because there could be curbside pickup, which might be more convenient than having to be home and have a package left and not, not be sure if it's going to be there when you get home or, uh, uh, you know, if you've got something you have to return, to return it to a nearby store can be a lot easier than having to pack it up and take it to a FedEx office. So it, it's the combination, I think, that's really working fairly well 
And for some people, they want to avoid stores. For other people, they prefer to get back in the stores in a hurry. Is it a battle then between the big Amazons, these huge companies, and smaller stores? Or do you see a landscape where they can find some way to exist together? That's You know what? I, I've got my opinion on that. That's really the, the thing to be seen in the long run. The the problem with Amazon is it's known as the everything store. Like there's basically nothing an independent retailer may offer except if they make it themselves. So keep that in mind. You know, if you're making your own, um, you know, preserves or food products or your own clothing or you're at a big level, Lululemon, we'll use that example. If you control the product and, and it's unique enough, then, yeah, you can differentiate from Amazon. But most independent uh, businesses can't be that differentiated. So how do they work with Amazon? It's really about knowing your local audience and creating something more than just the product itself, like having having a good atmosphere, a good experience, good knowledge um, is the way to fight it. But it's a tough battle. It's a tough battle. Amazon is a commodity. There's nothing super sophisticated about that. It's big, big screen of different products at different prices, and you pick the one you want. But that's not for everybody. And David, I know you have to go. Do you just one final question? Do you see things changing then as the pandemic continues? Well, one of the things we've noticed is when it's been products that have been in in demand, like say bikes, outdoor items. It's the local independents that seem to have done fairly well. And the bigger operators, not quite as big as Amazon, but bigger with cumbersome systems, have often fallen a bit short. We saw the sad case of of Mac. But even IKEA, which is doing a really good business, is way behind on its ability to fulfill online orders, for example. So uh, there is a little glimmer of hope for the local independents. All right. Uh, David Ian Gray, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, David is a marketing expert with Dig360. Well, taking a look at some real estate numbers, and this is the September 2020 pre-sale pulse report. It is put out by MLA Canada, which is one of this country's real estate sales and marketing firms. So what do these numbers show us as far as the pre-sale market and how things are looking in the lower mainland? Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Cameron McNeil, executive Executive Director and Partner at MLA Canada. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we're talking about pre-sale, uh, the pre-sale market, how is that looking right now uh, in the Lower Mainland? Well, the real estate market is is often divided into two major camps. The first one being uh, what we often see in the media, uh, which is represented through the multiple listing uh, numbers that come out every month, and that is um, an overall barometer of the market with respect to resale. Um, quite often, those numbers don't reflect what's happening in the pre-sale world. And the pre-sale world is when a developer releases a project for sale to the market, which is yet to be completed in construction. It may take two or three years to build it and finish it and, and deliver that to the market. And so, um, uh, we are seeing surprisingly a strong market in both fronts at the moment. We're seeing a very strong 
uh, resale market, and and the MLS numbers are reflecting some record-breaking numbers, uh, which are worth talking about. And they're often the leading indicator to what is happening in the pre-sale market, which is really starting to come back as well. Uh, did it change, or did you see a negative impact because of the pandemic? We, we did, and I think we have to just go back a few years before the uh, pandemic to really understand, Joe, what, what's happening. Um, the numbers just came out for September, and the numbers are, you know, we knew they were strong, but admittedly, they, they even surprised us. They were, in some markets, record-breaking. Uh, we were up 63% in total sales transactional volume of September 2020 compared to September 2019, uh, which is, a, which is a, a very huge number. In the Fraser Valley, it was their largest month ever recorded as far as sales transactional volume. And of course, you can appreciate when you've got that much demand, um, prices also tend to, tend to follow and get pushed up depending on how much supply there is. And uh, on the pre-sale side, we also saw um, numbers starting to move up. And, and to specifically address the COVID question, the first three months of COVID was a really unique time. Uh, as you recall, you know, we were all trying to understand how it would affect our lives. We were all moving from our workplaces to our homes. Uh, realtors were not able to conduct open houses in a normal fashion. So we were all playing catch up and it created a small period of pent up demand. And so March, April, May, the numbers were down. But as soon as, as soon as we were able to accommodate uh, people's regular rhythms in life and transactions moving back to a little bit more normal, um, we really saw that demand rebound and, and actually surge forward. So we had a small period of pent-up demand followed by a surge in demand in the last three months. And have you seen a difference in that when we talk about pre-sales, I think we, we generally think of condos and townhomes and the bigger projects, yes. but have you seen a shift at all in the type of housing that people are interested in? Yes, of course. And, and um, obviously, uh, with COVID, people are exploring new, new ways of being productive and working and, and uh, different, different household uh, arrangements and values. And so we're seeing people pursuing more space uh, than they might previously before, as well as even looking at different jurisdictions. So we're really seeing some of the outlying areas of Greater Vancouver, some of the secondary markets and some of the other um, urban centers throughout the province really benefiting from um, or really you know, being, being driven from the fact that people can work more remotely and, and look at different lifestyle decisions. The Fraser Valley is a great example of that. We have uh, numerous projects that we're involved with in the Fraser Valley, and we're seeing a lot of demand coming out of uh, the um, uh, west of the Fraser River, uh, moving across the river and moving into the Fraser Valley um, to, to pursue new space and, uh, and their dollar just goes further in, in some of those other markets. Uh, because it seemed like up until now, we've been hearing those stories, but they've been kind of anecdotal. There hasn't been actual numbers to show that, yes, people are permanently going to be working from home or maybe only going into the office if they do go back a couple of days a week and are making that huge change, which is to move to a whole new community and to move somewhere simply to have more space. Yeah, and, and again, it's really difficult to, to, um, uh, to analyze the exact motivation um, so it is anecdotal, but we are certainly seeing uh, people's geography moving further afield uh, than it was just 12 months ago. So we are able to track that. And so that is that is holding true. Um, and and really, we are looking at reasonable affordability when it comes to very, very low interest rates. These are generationally low, historic low interest rates. And when we survey all of the people that come through all of our show homes, 
um, and, that, and ask their motivation for buying. Um, uh, interest rates hits one of the top three. Um, their family needs is the, is the number one, is the second one. But the third one, which is a real interesting thing, is this belief in the future that prices are going to go up. And, and, and that's a more difficult thing to put our finger on. But when we start to dissect and understand that, what, it, what I think people really understand is that relative to all the places in the globe, um, Canada, BC, and Vancouver are, are relatively uh, top of the pile as a destination and a place to call home. So Vancouver has been always driven by a lot of immigration and, and a lot of desire to either stay or move here. And those demand forces are, are ultimately what is below the surface driving this. Now, you pair, you pair that with the fact that in 2017, 18, 19, we actually had a, had a cooling market when the NDP provincial government came in. They took on uh, many initiatives uh, with the intent to cool down the real estate market. That's exactly what happened. But what that did is that curtailed supply. So we have this situation now where we have strong demand. Uh, COVID's given it a bit of a, uh, a pullback and now a push forward. But you layer that on top of the fact that we have limited supply of new housing and we've set ourselves up for a situation where we're really going to see prices push forward in the coming months. Uh, do you see that that resulting then in builders and developers uh, put get, getting more and trying to get more on the market? Yes, we are. Uh, you know, we advise lots of developers, and we've been over the last few years um, advising caution. Um, the market was was a wait and watch kind of market for a while, and now that we see the demand there. Um, we we do see new developments coming to the market. Yet, the all the different layers of uh, municipal and 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 uh, the difficulties with a developer to be able to bring a project to market and make sense of it financially are still there. There's so many fees and taxes um, that you know, frankly, uh, until the prices move up a little bit further and we start to see. Um, a little bit more momentum in the market, I still believe we're going to be in a supply-constrained situation. And the other element of that is a typical real estate development that we see when we're driving around and we see a, 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 a construction tower or something like that, it could take three to five years for that project to start sell sales to the point it delivers keys to to the end user, to the occupant. And, um, and so... Um, uh, you know, even if a developer takes action today, it won't affect the market fundamentals for three to four to five years from now. So there's going to be a, sh- a medium term period of time where there's a strong demand and a shortage of supply. Uh, because when you you make an interesting point, when you do drive around, if you're in the Fraser Valley, uh, Chilliwack, Abbotsford, I mean, you don't have to go very far before you see a building crane or you see a project that's getting underway. Those would have all obviously started before the pandemic. So how does that play in? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the pandemic was a bit of a double blow in the in the real estate cycle. We had this this cooling of the cycle in 2017, 18, and 19. The end of 19 started to come up, and even the beginning of 2020, all the numbers were looking like they were trending in a in a in an upward direction. And uh, then, of course, COVID hit and really um, brought us back down again. And it just prolonged um, uh, this 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 uh, real estate cycle that we were in. And um, and yet the city was growing and the province was growing when it came to our our um, our, um, our population numbers. And we simply don't have the housing uh, in order to um, uh, supply all of that demand. And so although 
you know, uh, COVID is still here and there'll be a second wave, um, you know, ultimately um, that housing is needed to, to accommodate uh, our population. And so we're, we're in this very unique situation where for the short term and the medium term, um, you know, we need to come to terms with how COVID is affecting our lives and how it's changing our lifestyles and, and, and perhaps even uh, will show up as a, as a, as a recession. But ultimately below that, um, the, the city is growing and the demand for international people to come into this country and to reside in British Columbia and in greater Metro Vancouver is still very, very high. And ultimately that's what's going to continue to drive our values over the next, you know, three, four or five years plus. All right. Uh, Cameron McNeil, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much uh, for coming on the show. Great. Thank you for having me, Joe. Have a good day. You too. Cameron McNeil is the executive director and partner at MLA Canada.